Good morning. This is David Bennett, and this is Bitcoin And, a podcast where I try to find the edge effect between the worlds of Bitcoin, gaming, permaculture, podcasting, and education to gain a better understanding of all. Edge effect is a concept from ecology describing a greater diversity of life where the edges of two systems overlap. While species from either system can be found at the edge, it is important to note there are species in the overlap that exist in neither system, and that is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. It is with broken hearts and the deepest sadness that we must share the terrible news that on Tuesday, our friend, soul brother, and bandmate of over 45 years, Neil, has lost his incredibly brave three-and-a-half-year battle with brain cancer, glioblastoma. We ask that friends, family, and media alike understandably respect the family's need for privacy and peace at this extremely painful and difficult time. Those wishing to express their condolences can choose a cancer research group or charity of their choice and make a donation in Neil's name. Rest in peace, brother. It is 9.24 a.m. Central Standard Time. It is the 13th of January, 2020, and this is episode 179 of Bitcoin And. Neil Peart, drummer of Rush, died on Wednesday, January the 7th. It was announced on Friday, January the 10th, and it uh, really threw me for a loop. The man was only 67 years old. He had just retired about four years earlier. It uh, was the R40 tour from Rush that uh, Neil hung up the sticks, man. And he was going to hang out with his daughter, who's roughly the same age as my daughter, and uh, spend the rest of his life with his new wife and, and baby girl. And he couldn't because he died. And I hate to start the week on such a somber freaking note, but um, it is what it is. You know, so you got to, you got to, you know, these, these things come up and remind us of our own mortality. And, you know, sort of in the words of one of my favorite podcasters, uh, Jack Spierko from the Survival Podcast, uh, what are you going to do with your dash? And the dash is the little character that comes in between the date, the year that you were born and the year that you died on your tombstone, you know, and it's like the most important character on your tombstone is going to be that dash. What the hell did you do with it? He did a lot. (laughs) 45 years of being with Rush, right? And oh my God, the repertoire that they put out. Anyway, so the entire week, is going to be sort of devoted to the music of Rush. Most in, most intently, I'm going to be focusing on the drumming of Neil Peart because you're not going to find a better drummer. You're not. You'll find ones that are, you know, arguably as good, of which there are a few, but no one's better. Um Wow, what a what a loss, man. Uh Neil Parrott was born September the 12th, 1952 and he died in January 7th uh <clears throat> in 20 in 2020. Um that's a hell of a loss. 
let's go ahead and get into vitals and take a look at the Bitcoin price. What do we got going on here? We have Bitcoins chilling out at $8,103. We've got a low, looks like it's going to be over at P2P, B2B at $8,078. We, we're going to have our high over at BitAsset as usual at $8,149. We've only had less than 300,000 transactions done in the last 24 hours, but that doesn't surprise me. The weekends are always really light for uh, Bitcoin transactions. Um, that gives us about 12,393 transactions per hour on average. 554,000 BTC were sent during that last 24 hours. 23,000 were being sent on average per hour with an average transaction value that's really low, 1.86 BTC, and a median transaction also low at 0.021 BTC, or about 169 bucks USD. Block times are a bit low at 9 minutes and 10 seconds. We have Z, oh, sorry, <clears throat> 0.097 BTC being taken on as fees on a per block basis. We have 15.25 BTC being taken in fees overall in the last 24 hours. We have had a 3.68% drop in the hash rate, but we're still at 106 exahashes per second. Jeez. It's a monster, man. It's just a freaking monster. Last uh, commit to the uh, Bitcoin Core repository seems to have been on the 11th. Yeah, on the 11th, a couple of days ago. Uh, everything seems to be gaining in value, even though that all the rest of these are shit coins. Ethereum is at 143. Bcash is at 264. Litecoin is at 50. BSV is at 164. Ethereum Classic is at five and a half. Dogecoin is at 0.0028, so our dog is back to where uh, the dog always seems to be wanting to chill out at. And at 32,000 transactions in the last 24 hours, it's walking all over. It almost hits Ethereum Classic. By the way, Ethereum Classic had a hard fork, but I'm not going to talk about it because why? But it's uh, really close to stomping over uh, Ethereum Classic, but it certainly is walking all up and down Litecoin's ass, that's for sure. Mempool is a little deep. We got five blocks in and we're at 8,745 unconfirmed transactions chilling out in the mempool. Everything is above one megabyte. Some of them quite a bit. Uh, we got like 1.38 megabytes, 1.47, 1.41, 1.35, and 1.28 are the last five blocks that have gone by. All the ones that are coming up in the mempool seem to also be above one megabyte in value. Uh, Lightning Network, we are at 11,041 nodes. That is a 2.52% increase over the last 30 days. We have 35,742 channels. We have 865 Bitcoin in all those channels. And we have, oh, let's see, nine new nodes came online in the last 24 hours, which is a 12.5% increase but only 85 new channels came online and that is a 17 and a half percent decrease in the last 24 hours. That'll do it for vitals. All right, man. So I pull, I bit the bullet, pulled the trigger and did all the other stuff. 
and got myself a river financial account up and running. Uh, I think they're only live in seven states, maybe eight. I know it's not all 50, but it, it, it's. I think it's a pretty scant amount of states. Right now, they are working on getting their licensing in, in the rest of the uh, continental United States, Hawaii and Alaska, I suppose. Uh, but they are live in Texas, and that was uh, that was really good news for me because I was able to stack a hundred bucks worth of Sats um, uh, on. Let's see, what did I do? That looks like I did that on Saturday. Yeah, Saturday at seven o'clock, I tweeted out that I set up my River Financial account with recurring Sats stacking option turned on AF. Pretty damn slick interface, and customer service had my first problem: Chrome blocking my bank setup within thirty minutes. That last part, eh, because I don't type well, it came out wrong. Um, that what it meant to say was that my very first problem that Chrome was blocking my bank setup was solved by River Financial's customer service within 30 minutes. From the time I emailed them to the time that I was able to get back or that they uh, uh, wrote me back and said, Dude, we fixed it on our end, and I'm not sure how, but they did. They fixed it. I was able to connect up my bank account and uh, buy a hundred bucks worth of Sats. So let's talk about the River Financial uh, thing a little bit. The interface is very slick. It there there's no am well. I had to get a little used to the visuals that I was seeing as to whether or not something was actually being executed. I got a big problem, people, with... <laughs> I got a big problem with you, people. Now, um, I do have major problems with websites and or like phone app, you know, iPhone apps or pretty much anything where if I'm going to do X... And I know X is going to take a little bit of time to execute. I want a status bar. I want to know that you've received my command and that you're actually freaking working on it. Because without that, I'm like, what, you know, especially if it takes a long time to complete, of which none of this did. But I'm just saying that when it comes to user experience, if you're going to design something, and you're going to ask a user to, to, I don't know, execute on X. And you know that that X is going to take some amount of, could even, either you know it's going to take some time or you know it could take some time, but even if it supposedly executes immediately, I need a status bar. I need to be able to look at something or or have some kind of feedback that the, you know, the, the, the application, the computer, the, the app, whatever says, I have received your kind command, dear sir, and I am now freaking executing it. If you will have a modicum of patience, I will let you know when the shit's done. I'm running into a lot of things that don't do that. Please, if you're going to design anything, keep the user wait time in mind. Not that I don't mind. It's not that I'm saying get your shit done quick. You, you know, that would be good. Um, that's not my issue. My issue is I need to see that the thing is being executed. So back to River Financial, it took me a little while to understand where they were putting their status bars. Their status bars are actually in part of the GUI of each particular screen that, that you're going through to do, you know, execute on whatever X they have you execute on. And I was like, oh, thank God, 
they're at the, you know, the, the way that their, their GUI works, you actually see, Oh, they have been, they have accepted my command. They are executing on it and it's done. You know, it's like, and, and the way that they do it is pretty slick and the rest of the interface is really slick. It was completely intuitive. I was able to get all this shit done in 30 minutes. And the only reason it took that long is because I had that whole, every time I tried to go link my bank account, I'd get a message that said Chrome extension is blocking, you know, your ability to do this. So that's when I wrote them. And again, like I said, within 30 minutes, they had that shit fixed. And once I got the email, I tried again. And sure enough, it linked right up to my bank account. Um, yes, they do KYC your ass. Okay. Um, <clears throat> now the KYC portion, nobody likes it in this, in this, you know, in Bitcoin, none of us like it. None of us want to deal with it. And yet here we are, we're still having to deal with it and we're always going to have to deal with it except when you have your own business and you're accepting Bitcoin for goods and services tendered. That's when you don't have to deal with KYC, okay? And we should all keep that in mind, that if we're going to depend on on-ramps to get Bitcoin, more and more and more of them until all of them are going to end up with KYC because it's either that or somebody says on their office door because they have an address and a phone and, and people that are in charge that can go to jail that, yeah, they're going to get KY. They're going to have to implement KYC. The only way out is goods and services through a business that you build that you can tender for Bitcoin. In that particular case, all KYC is off the table except I don't know. I could see laws and whatnot coming down the pipe, but dude, really, you know, that doesn't stop the drug dealer in an alley taking a hundred dollar bill from somebody and giving them a sack of dope. I, it, it doesn't, I hate to put it in those terms, but that's the, that's the way that, that the whole thing is being framed. So we might as well use their rhetoric in either event. Keep it in mind. If you can't use, uh, or if you don't really, if you really don't want to use KYC, and I really don't. That's one of the reasons why I'm trying to build something. One of these days, maybe I'll start getting paid. And if I do, I'm going to be like saying, no, I don't want cash. I want BTC. And then I will figure out what to do with that on my end. And that will be nobody's business but my own. See, that that's how that shit works. Okay. Now that's enough for River Financial. It, like I said, go, go check them out. At River Financial, all one word on Twitter. And in their uh, bio, you'll be able to get to river. Uh, it's river.com. It's really easy. I can't believe they, I don't know. I'm not sure what they paid to get that URL, but I'll bet you it cost a hell of a lot of money. River.com. Think about that. That I'll bet that shit was squatted on since God, since the early days, you know, early days of the internet. All right, let's get into the rest of the news morning roundup here. Uh, Bitcoin options launch imminent as CME open interest hits a seven-month high. This is William Suberg writing for Cointelegraph sometime this morning. Bitcoin futures traders generated at least $20 billion in daily volume last week as two new option products prepared to hit the market. According to data released by future provider 
uh, futures provider CME group on January the 9th, its futures contracts alone saw open interest almost 70% higher than at the end of 2019. My God, it's only the first part of this year, y'all. We're only 13 days into this shit. Wow. Open interest was the was among the highest ever last week, only noticeably lagging behind the peak seen at the end of June. At the time, BTC USD was circling its local highs of $13,800, while the past seven days likewise saw a price uptick to $8,400. As Cointelegraph reported, interest has surged in the run-up to CME releasing its Bitcoin futures option. A launch could come as soon as Monday, subject to regulatory approval, officials claimed, with the data already set for release on the company's website. On Saturday, meanwhile, Bitcoin Derivatives Exchange, FTX, quietly rolled out its own Bitcoin options product. According to the aggregate volume data for Bitcoin futures products by analyst SLU Markets, global futures trading volume crossed the $20 billion mark on January 8th alone. SKU added that its figures were not exhaustive, <laughs> exhaustive suggesting the actual total may be slightly higher. Concur- or currently, exchanges Huobi and OKX dominate in terms of volume along with market stalwart BitMEX. FTX, meanwhile, is seeing calls for Bitcoin trading at 12000 one month after its block reward halving in May. The calls are priced at $430. In other words, for every $430 above the $12,000 threshold, investor returns double. Be careful out there, folks. Be careful with this whole you know, uh, trading shit. I'm always going to say that. Own the underlying asset, okay? Just own the underlying asset and don't worry about trading options or derivatives or futures or any of that shit unless you are just a badass. If you are a complete badass and you know it, you don't need to listen to me, all right? I'm just I'm just saying. But for people who are like, maybe I'll, like the cat reading the newspaper, maybe I should start learning how to trade futures, If you want to do that, learn how to trade futures on, I don't know, like some kind of testing site. Take classes or read a shit ton of books for like a year before you pull trigger one on doing that shit. All right. So this story pointed to FTX also rolling out its own Bitcoin options uh, product. Let's read about that. This is from coinspeaker.com. Tulu Aboyoy, he's writing sometime today, or her, I'm not sure, because, you know, I'm not good with names. You, that's a theme for the podcast. FTX Derivatives Exchange launches Bitcoin options trading. FTX Crypto Derivatives Exchange Platform has begun services for BTC options. The announcement came in a tweet posted on Saturday from FTX CEO Bankman Fried. Uh, The announcement did not include any specific details about the offering, only that it's Bitcoin options. However, in another tweet, just about two hours later, the CEO said the platform had hit 1 million in volume since the launch. Even as days have passed, not a lot of information has been shared yet. It might be easy to make the assumption that specific details are only known to participants. Regardless, Bitcoin options from the platform like FTX is apparently a welcome development based on the numbers already pulled in. The FTX platform began its services in 2019, but is already leading the derivatives market. CoinGecko's ranking puts FTX as the eighth 
or eighth largest exchange derivatives platform just above BTSE. FTX offers services involving different digital assets along with over-the-counter offerings as well. So there you go, man. Uh, you know, like this this whole thing with the CME came out a couple of days ago. The anticipation uh, news articles started being drafted and, and dropped. And, and then the next thing you know, here we are. And FTX silently slides in into the radar screen right at the time all this stuff with CME starts like breaking loose. So again, I want to iterate <clears throat> how important it is to own the underlying asset of which all, all these derivatives, options, futures, whatever, it's all going to depend on the underlying asset. And you have the chance to own the underlying asset. And the more you don't spend, trade, or otherwise lose said underlying asset, <clears throat> it's just going to be better for you in the long run. Buy hold, sit on your thumbs, burn your hardware wallet, keep your phrase, make it, make it so where it's a freaking impossible for you to trade this shit. Okay. Because the chances of losing the underlying asset that may very well be the largest thing since the Medici's, you know, you don't want to lose that. You, you don't want to lose that chance. That's, that's all I'm saying. Okay. Decrypt.co. Andrew Hayward is writing yesterday, January the 12th, how blockchain copyright protection will thwart pirates. Oh God, you don't need a blockchain. Okay. I, I, I'm reading this because of, of the, it, it, it illust the story illustrates kind of the lunacy of what's going on with things like bananas on the blockchain, stuff on the blockchain, my oil change on the blockchain. I, you know, let's just get into it. Comic fans got an unexpected gift in mid-December when cartoonist Gary Larson announced that the far side would finally be officially available online along with new content. Larson long resisted the allure of the internet due to concerns over the use of his work, asking fan websites not to share his strips in the late 90s letter written in response to unauthorized reproductions. Please, please refrain from putting the far side out on the internet, he wrote. These cartoons are my children of sorts, and like a parent, I'm concerned about where they go at night without telling me. <laughs> This sounds like something Gary would say. If a well-known and successful creator struggles with copyright protection on the internet, then what about everyone else? Copyright protection is one of the more intriguing use cases for blockchain technology, and we're already seeing its potential impact with a number of companies exploring the concept. Here's how blockchain could change the way we handle copyrights for intellectual property and a look at some of the bigger players in the space today. Uh, Blockchain uses a decentralized distributed model that creates a ledger with an immutable record of entries verified by consensus. For artists and creators, there are obvious benefits. With blockchain, they could essentially timestamp a creation and later revisions on the ledger, providing proof of ownership of that creation. That information would be immediately made public and would effectively be immune from tampering or modification. Yeah, we're going to come back to that shit. That proof of Original ownership is essential when fighting piracy and enforcing rights claims. 
Some blockchain copyright service concepts offer the ability to identify potential rights issues, such as someone trying to register an already listed work or unauthorized usage of an image and alert the original owner. Blockchain technology won't eliminate privacy altogether, but it could provide tools for IP owners to better police and protect their rights. Another potential advantage comes from blockchain's abilities to execute smart contracts. As a result, it may be possible to streamline the process of licensing of work a work by making contract terms available in the ledger and allowing interested parties to accept them as desired. There are already many different companies and organizations exploring the space around blockchain and media rights. The nonprofit content blockchain project is focused on creating an open standard called the International Standard Content Code Identifier, which would be used for all types of media, including text, music, images, and video. The initiatives hope to provide the core infrastructure for such a system, including smart licenses for transactions. PO.ET, Poet, is another interesting project that sees a path to a better web through decentralized ownership, as well as monetization and discovery functionality. Its proof-of-existence protocol has been built with those tenets in mind, while it was originally planned to be based around Ethereum, the group partnered with blockchain development platform Echo last fall and will now tie its future to Bitcoin instead. And probably the better bet. Pixie is a blockchain-driven service focused on images and its comprehensive offerings. Uh, it tracks more than 50 million images across the internet daily to find instances of infringement of registered images. Should it find an unauthorized use, you can have Pixie's copyright lawyer seek fees and damages on your behalf. God, that's like, uh, sick the dogs on them. Other players in the space include GoChain, RightsChain, stuff like that. <laughs> China takes the lead with copyright law and can be a complicated and convoluted system, and it varies by country, but it's how creators protect their rights to their intellectual property. As with many potentially exciting blockchain implementations, potential is the key word for now. Even with so many different projects out there, we're a long way from widespread adoption of blockchain technology for ensuring IP rights still. Gradual acceptance may be more likely than a sudden sea change. For example, China's courts have recently implemented a blockchain-based system for proving ownership and managing evidence in copyright infringement disputes. Decrypt recently wrote about how internet writer Chen Hongyan has used the system to save ample time and money in the process of enforcing IP rights. Part of a wider movement to use blockchain to automate judicial processes in major Chinese cities. First China, then the world. Okay, if you haven't figured this one out yet, you don't need a blockchain for this. And the reason you don't need a blockchain for this is the simple reason of the issue of the token of value. The whole reason Bitcoin works is because Bitcoin itself, the token generated from the system securing said token has value. It didn't used to have value, but when Laszlo decided to spend $10,000 on some pizza or 10,000 Bitcoin on some pizza that is now worth God only knows how much. Um, yeah, it became, it, it started to get a value. And now here we are at about eight grand in 11 years from zero and from zero to $1. It, nobody thought Bitcoin would, would make dollar parity. Well, that happened a long time ago. <laughs> So here we are. Now, 
blockchain as a technology, its dependence on that token of value, the reason the reason that it's dependent on the token of value is that without people mining the chain, then you don't have true decentralization. And without true decentralization, all the things in this particular story about how copyright was going to be protected fall apart. All the arguments fall apart, whether it's bananas on the blockchain, diamonds on the blockchain, some other shit on the blockchain or what it blockchains on the blockchain, it all falls to pieces without the token of value. And even if it has a token of value, then it's like, well, is it actually valuable enough for me to put in the work and the infrastructure and the maintenance as a miner to mine that chain for said token of value, thereby and only thereby providing the protections and all the things that this particular article is talking about. If not, then you don't need a blockchain. This, and actually, in this particular case, you don't need a blockchain anyway. Hell, you could just have two or three companies have a distributed ledger between them, and you sign up for their service as a content creator saying, hey, I'll pay you 10 bucks a month if you protect my intellectual property. You don't need a blockchain. I'm sorry. I, I just, I don't get where all this shit keeps coming from. But enough said, let's move on to Venezuela. <clears throat> Crypto Slate's Johnny Emsley is writing sometime this morning Venezuelans are paying a $1,700 premium on local Bitcoins and volumes are the fastest growing in the world. Volumes have skyrocketed on local Bitcoins Venezuela after posting a staggering 2,492% increase over the last 12 months, making the stricken South American economy the world's fastest growing, but likely the most expensive market for local Bitcoins. Weekly volumes leapt from 13.7 billion Venezuelan bolivares to mid-January 2019, oh, in mid-January 2019, to 363 billion, good God, <laughs> bolivars at the end of last week, according to Coindance. The week just passed was one of the platform's biggest on records, having seen an explosive 38% increase from the week prior. This is in spite of the fact that the platform may be seeing the highest premiums for Bitcoin in the world. BTC is currently listed on LBC Venezuela no lower than $9,401 US, about $1,300 above spot. And the only seller offering a whole Bitcoin has listed an ask price of an outlandish $11,687 per BTC. That is a $3,580 premium, guys. Wow. LBC's evident growth in Venezuela can be seen as another validation of Bitcoin's reputation as a non-confiscatable and censorship-resistant store of value. Local Bitcoins is widely considered a platform for facilitating non-speculative purchases of BTC due to its being a solely fiat-to-crypto exchange and is charging typically several hundred dollar premiums to spot. It is also, crucially, one of the only exchanges that regularly publishes country-specific trade volumes. As such, LBC trade volumes have become a yardstick for quantifying purchases of seeming necessity. 
And indeed, a closer analysis of LBC data has revealed that the original cryptocurrency is seeing exceptionally high rates of adoption in countries with low economic freedom, countries like Venezuela. This narrative becomes more convincing when cross-examining with trends on other exchanges. Last year, Bitcoin jumped to a $2,250 premium on one of Argentina's top exchanges after the government imposed capital controls. Not too long before LBC Argentina volumes hit their all-time high. For decades, Venezuela has grappled with one of the worst national crises in recent history described by economists as the single largest economic collapse outside of war in the last 45 years. And things don't seem to be getting better. <clears throat> Last year, Venezuela took the title of Bloomberg's most miserable economy on its annual misery index, which ranks the world's worst economies based on inflation and employment rates. Faced with an inflation rate of more than 8 million percent on and off capital controls and a steady decline of the production of oil, which accounts for about 99 percent of Venezuela's export earnings, Venezuelans would have ample reasons to allocate to Bitcoin. <clears throat> As reported previously by CryptoSlate, Venezuela is the world's most Bitcoinified Coinified. Sorry, the world's most Bitcoinified nation in terms of amounts of BTC owned per head of population and amount of income spent on BTC relative to income. So there you go. Uh, local Bitcoins in Venezuela soaring high, higher and higher and higher. But the one part, the one part of this story that really jumps out at me is this one. The only seller offering a whole Bitcoin listed a price of $12,000 per BTC. And it's not the price. The, uh, there's only one seller that is liquid enough in Bitcoin holdings to say, I will offer a whole Bitcoin. You know, you can buy whole Bitcoins, not just like, you know, several hundred thousand Satoshi or something like that, but a whole Bitcoin, only one guy out of that entire freaking market. There's only one dude that's willing to part with a whole Bitcoin or probably several whole Bitcoins. That's, that's kind of a huge tell because at this point there there's, you know, it seems less and less likely as we move farther and farther into the future that whole Bitcoins are going to be a deal. I remember when I bought my first whole Bitcoin and it was 250 bucks and I bought it on Coinbase, son of a bitch. In either event, <clears throat> I immediately turned around <clears throat> and blew, let's see, what was it? I blew 20% of that Bitcoin immediately at, remember, at 250 bucks, I blew 20% of that thing to buy a $50 annual membership to Jack Spearco's um, survival podcast. Uh, what, the, what does he call it? Members Service Brigade, where you can get deals off of uh, different vendors who help sponsor his show. Yeah, that was like the most expensive subscri year, or annual subscription I've ever bought in my entire life. It was, was it worth it? If it had been, if it had remained $50, yes, it would have totally been worth it. But that son of a bitch has 0.2 of my Bitcoin. And I'm never going to be able to get it back. And you know what the price is now. So, uh, whatever. Anyway, <laughs> there's your morning roundup.
right, before we get into the song of the day, we're going to, I, I want to take y'all through this uh, Esquire um, article about Neil Peart. Essentially, all this is, is some of the people in the show, you know, in, in show business, you know, memorializing Neil Peart as they saw him. Now, re- I want a lot of people to remember here that Rush was, you know, it, it's a, a band that never succumbed to one of their members dying of a drug overdose. They, I mean, never, they didn't do shit like trash their hotel rooms, you know, get, you know, like, I don't know, get so drunk and, and like have such a freaking cocaine addiction that they would destroy whole hotel, you know, floors and shit. They were, they were pretty solid dudes insofar as, you know, they went to bed early, they rehearsed the shit out of their music, they wrote and they performed and they didn't, I mean, they were all married. They they didn't do any of the shenanigans that, that you think that being a rock and roll star does. And a lot of people didn't like Rush. Hell, in the 70s, they were widely panned, mostly because of Getty Lee's voice being really high. And you know, I mean, it's one of those things you either really like them or you kind of don't. It's not, there's not a whole lot of in between there. Um, and again, they were widely panned pretty much all, almost all through most of the seventies until 2112 came out. Uh, when that album came out, things turned around, but before that, Man, you should have read some of the reviews. This is one of the reasons why Neil Peart never read reviews. That was one of his uh, lesson, 10 lessons of success is don't read reviews. Don't ever do it. But amazingly enough, Neil touched so many people in the music world that you wouldn't probably have a lot of the people that you listen to had it not been for them looking to Neil Peart as an inspiration. And so here we go. Let, let, let's see what some of the people in the biz have to say. Chuck D says at the end of a crazy rock hall night in 2013, where rush and public enemy were inducted. <laughs> oh man. It was just myself and Neil Peart alone talking and laughing low in relief. The long night was over a small table backstage sharing a unique moment without much word rest in beats. My man. Uh, I'm not going to read the one from Justin Trudeau because, dude, who gives a shit? Jack Black says, the master will be missed. Neil Peart, rip. Adam Sandler says, Neil Peart, rip. Thanks for all you gave us. We could not have loved you more. Uh, Peter Frampton, famous for 20-minute songs. Rest in peace, Neil Peart. So sad to hear. Kevin Smith says, he was not only an incredible drummer in Rush, Neil Peart wrote their brilliant lyrics as well. Quote, all this machinery making modern music can still be open-hearted, not so coldly charted. It's really just a question of your honesty. Yeah, your honesty. Farewell, icon. Brian Wilson from the Beach Boys. I think, yeah, Beach Boys. Uh, I just heard about Neil Peart's passing. I feel real bad about this. He was way too young. Neil was one of the great drummers and he will be missed. Love and mercy to Neil's family. Brian Flea from Red Hot Chili Peppers say, says, I'm going to go spend the day air drumming. Rip Neil Parrott. What a craftsman. That dude fucking shredded. Brian Potion says, fuck this timeline. Definition of gut punched. 
I feel like I just lost my cool uncle, my cool uncle that was always the best rock drummer to ever live. So sad there will never be Rush 50. Still thought I'd see them one last time in Toronto doing a one-off, rip Neil Peart. Kirk Hammett from Metallica says, rip to a master. Patrick Wilson, oh man, Neil Peart, every drummer just ran to their kit to bust out Tom Sawyer. His dedication and rededication to his craft is a lesson in always improving. Never be complacent. You can always be better. Rip. And Geezer Butler, I don't know who Geezer is, but he says, sad to hear of Neil's passing. Rip. Now, I want to go back to Patrick Wilson, where he says his dedication and rededication to his craft. Now, what is he talking about? Neil Peart was one of the greatest drummers by the time he was 20. Right, 20 years old, he was one of the greatest drummers to have ever walked the planet. And that's not just me saying it, man. That's like like drumming magazines, like Modern Drummer. He won like 38 awards. But he started, I mean, once 2112 and even before, but really once 2112 came out, the world, especially the music world on the inside, stood up and took notice that this guy was was something special as far as percussion was concerned. And he went through the rest of the 70s. And then he went through the 80s. And then he went through the 90s. And then it was somewhere around, uh, somewhere in the 90s that his wife died of cancer six months after his daughter died in a one car accident. She was going back to college and uh, she ran off a mountain road and, uh, and died. And she was, she was going back to college. So she was at least 18 um, to completely uh, 100% devastating, obviously. And he, he told the rest of the band that he was done. That was it. He took a couple of bike rides you know, cause he was a motorcyclist and he uh, did a couple of uh, uh, actual bicycle, you know, rides through uh, China, wrote a couple of books. And then one day called Alex and Getty and said he wanted to start talking about doing another album. And then that's when they really came back hardcore during that time, during the resurgence of them um, coming back with, oh God, what was a uh, vapor trails was the first album that they had released in years. It was after the, uh, test for echo tour. Um, yeah. Um, he decided Neil Parrott decided that he needed drum lessons. The, the, I'm, t- I'm telling you, man, he was like going, I, I need drum lessons. <laughs> This is a guy who's going down in the history books. If he had died that day, he would have gone down in the history books alongside Buddy Rich as one of the greatest drummers of all time. And he's like the cat reading the newspaper. Maybe I should take drum lessons. And that's exactly what he did. And he hooked up with a couple of the more, you know, one of the, some of the older drummers, jazz drummers and the like to reconstruct everything that he knew about how to drum and how to be a drummer from the way he held his sticks to the way he thought about time, everything, everything. I'm in awe that you got a guy in, in, at the time he would have been in his late fifties, way early. actually it would have been like mid to late fifties has won 38 modern drumming award, modern drummer magazine awards and decides 
he's going to learn how to play drums all over again. You just, you can't buy that kind of dedication. That kind of dedication comes in your heart. You're born with it. And it's something that surfaces after a while. And I'm just, I'm always going to be in awe of this guy. And his, his loss is huge. Not it's it's it, it like homeboy said in one of those tweets. It's it's the definition of a gut punch. I was gut punched on Friday. Now I was sitting. My kids were playing at you know a McDonald's play place. Yeah, I know we went to McDonald's. They're kids, dude. What are you gonna do? I'm sitting there and they're playing on the 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 play place thing, and I'm reading, and all of a sudden this tweet comes across my feed, and I'm like shit, and I do the search. All I had to do was Google Neil Peart and every story up was that Neil Peart died and it was like being beaten in the face and it just sucked. It just sucked. But he gave everybody a lot. There was a lot of people that were writing that said the same thing over and over and over again. And I, I, I never really knew this part, but there was a lot of people that said that they would have died had it not been for this guy his lyrics, his music, man, when you're playing drums and you save people lives, wow. And then when you decide that you need to take lessons all over again, double wow.
Train Wrecked is brought to you by Gavin Andreessen at Gavin Andreessen on the 1st of January 2020 says the following. I found CryptoKitties, the most interesting cryptocurrency related project of 2018. Pool together, the most interesting of 2019. I don't know what I will find interesting in 2020, but it will probably be built on Ethereum. And there is probably no better response that I could make than Andreas Tosh made. He is N-D-E-E-T, N-D-E-E-T on Twitter. Back then, I had my doubts, but now I sense why you were removed as Bitcoin Core contributor. Besides enabling fake Toshi, you seem to not understand or care about the importance and magnitude of that genius invention and why it is important to keep the attack surface thin. My heavens. That, yeah, that pretty much spells it out. If you don't know, Gavin Andreessen was given the keys apparently by Satoshi himself. And this is part of the lore that that I kind of have never really understood how this played out or why. But Gavin Andreessen was one of the core contributors when Satoshi was still active uh, doing Bitcoin related stuff. Now, this is this is before it was actually called Bitcoin Core. Um, Gavin Andreessen is the person himself who, who coined the term Bitcoin Core. But when he was working with Satoshi and Satoshi was still in the game, right? And we're talking 2011 is basically when he bailed out. Um, <clears throat> what happened was that it was Satoshi that had commit access to the GitHub of, um, of Bitcoin, the, the core, the repository for all the code. So if, you know, it was, it was Satoshi himself that would be able to say, yeah, we'll go ahead and put this into the code because this person's contribution does X, Y, and Z, and it's completely awesome, whatever. There were several people working. Gavin was one of them. And then all of a sudden Gavin was invited by the CIA. It was either the CIA or the FBI. I cannot remember which. I'm thinking it was the CIA. He was invited by our good friends at the Central Intelligence Agency of the United States to come visit. And Gavin did. And Satoshi bailed. Right then, right there, gone. Never to be seen from or heard from again. The Interesting and most unusual part about that is that Satoshi gave commit access to Gavin Andreessen, if I'm if I'm remembering this correctly. Um, Gavin, not such a good coder and certainly ended up being anti-Bitcoin at the end with his famous rage quit. In, I can't remember, it was either Forbes or Business Insider or some major business publication printed the story. It was an interview, kind of an interview with him. And he said that Bitcoin was a failed project and he was leaving and he sold, he said he sold all of his Bitcoin. And I can't remember, this was, I want to say 2014, something like that. So he kind of sold the bottom a little bit. <laughs> um he certainly didn't get to see the highs of 20,000. And, and since then, he's become very salty, very anti-Bitcoin, even more so than when, when he decided to quit. 
Uh, so there you go. Now he's a, an Ethereum proponent, I, I guess, get gathering from what, what I'm reading here. Uh, crypto kitties. If you don't know what crypto kitties was or is, I don't know if it's actually still alive. Uh, I won't get into it. You can go, uh, Google it for yourself, but it's, you, you can actually go to the web, their uh, website, their, um, Twitter handle is at crypto kitties. That's all one word crypto kitties, like kitty cat, K I T T I E S. And you can, you can rummage around that for a while, but it was, it's, it's just dumb that even somebody like Gavin, as much as he hates Bitcoin would actually suggest that something like crypto kitties was even remotely interesting because it really wasn't. Anyway, there's your smoldering pile. Joke Corner is brought to you again by Dad Says Jokes. My girlfriend is fed up of my constant wordplay jokes, so I asked her, how can I stop my addiction? Whatever means necessary, she replied. No, it doesn't. I'll just let that one dangle right there for you. Anyway, so Monday, start of the new week uh, for many people in college. It's the start of the new semester. This will be the first day of classes, at least for the uh, universities and colleges around my neck of the woods it is. Uh, apparently, UT started like a week and a half ago. Poor dumb bastards. Anyway, um, again, for all this week, I will be in mourning for Neil Parrott. So you'll be hearing Rush and drum solos and all kinds of stuff about it. Uh, that's just the way it's going to be. I'm sorry, but it's one of the one of the masters has passed. You know, if, even if you don't like Rush, if you just listen to what the guy does to drum sets, I mean, it just pummels the living crap out of him. So that's yeah, it's it's just going to have to happen. Um, it's really hard to it's going to be really hard to sign this one off uh, as I usually do because of the passing of Neil Parrott, but I'll see you on the other side. This has been Bitcoin and, and I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.